I didn't have it on. It's my fault. Okay? Don't blame the guys up there. They work hard. Uh, sometimes it's me. <clears throat> Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. I'm continuing my series on the attributes of God. This morning I want us to look at the attribute of joyfulness from our God. Psalm 16, 9 through 11. Matter of fact, let me, let me back up and uh, start at verse 5. Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I've set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Did anybody wake up this morning and say, hey, I want to be miserable? Did anybody choose misery this morning? There are people who do that, maybe not consciously, they, they do it. If you're one of those people, don't come see me, okay? You know, that's because that's crazy. Get that fixed. Wait till you're choosing joy before you show up. You know, we don't like people choosing miseries. It's miserable. Why choose that? And it's contrary to the way God has designed us. The second great commandment, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. You already are inclined to love yourself. In the way you're inclined to love yourself, the way you wake up seeking pleasure for yourself, be inclined to love your neighbor also. God has designed us with this inward inclination to be happy to seek pleasure, to seek joy. God didn't want us waking up seeking misery. So if we choose that, we're just way outside the box. Don't go there. We need to get back to choosing joy and living the joyful life that God has designed for us and wants for us. Now, some people think, well, if it's our nature to love ourselves, and our natures are sinful, then it would be sinful to pursue pleasure. You know, don't you hate when people try to twist things around like that? But it's not sinful to seek pleasure. Perhaps that, I've, I've wrestled with that. Who are these people who think you can't be a Christian and, and have joy? Perhaps it comes from the philosopher Immanuel Kant. He... Uh, taught a lot on ethics. He had a book called The Metaphysics of Ethics. And his view was that you should never pursue joy as an end or as a goal. You should never pursue the commands of God because they were going to bring you joy. You should never pursue anything in Christ because it might bring you joy. You should only do what you do because it's rational, because it makes sense, because of reason. That was his supreme ethic. And that has definitely creeped into the church, because I hear it. I hear it when people um, tell me, you know, I, after church sometimes somebody will come up and say, 
I really enjoyed that sermon. Oh, I apologize, I apologize. I shouldn't enjoy a sermon. That was just a good sermon. I'm thinking, where did that come from? Why can you not enjoy a sermon? It's, it's the word of God being proclaimed to you. That, and he's a joyful God. It's a joyful word. Why can you not have joy? Has Emmanuel Kant been talking to you? You know, somebody has told you you should come into church and you should sit and you should listen to the sermon because it's right. Because it's rational. It's the right thing to do. Don't have joy, just do it because it's right. And many times we think about it that way. And I try to tell people, no, you can enjoy the sermon. It doesn't mean I'm going to try to be entertaining, but to be in the presence of God is to be in the fullness of joy. And we need to think there are things that we should do because it is joyful. When I studied Kant, made me think of Hebrews 12, verse 2. I'm sorry I didn't give that to you, but let's look up Hebrews 12, verse 2. You should, you should know this verse. Maybe see even back up to verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here's verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus who endured the cross for the joy. Might want to underline that. For the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the God, of the throne of God. Think about that. Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. If Christ can endure the cross for the joy set before him, we can endure life for the joy set before us. You can endure a sermon for the joy set before you in it. God is not opposed to joy. I mean, have you contemplated that Christ hanging on the cross, he says, I am there for the joy that is set before me. Isaiah picks up on it in Isaiah 53. He says he's going to die, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be so satisfied. He's going to be so filled with joy as he endures the cross. We need to think how God wants us filled with joy and enduring life with joy, being joyful as he is joyful. Now that leads me to Psalm 16. Verses 9 through 11, because we see here in this passage that we have a God of great joy. Verse 9, it says, therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also dwells securely. I wondered as we sang a lot of those songs, if you caught the frequent uh, expression of our flesh, our body, our bones singing and being joyful, as well as our soul being joyful, both body and soul filled with joy to God. And that's where uh, Psalm 16, verse 9 takes us. It says, my heart's glad, my, my flesh is glad. Why? Verse 10, because God doesn't abandon me. 
He takes me, verse 11, he takes me into his presence, and in his presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Some people have told me, say, well, you know, David, there's a difference between fun and joy. Okay. Um, and I tried to figure that out. Well, what's, you know, what are we talking about here? And people define fun lots of ways. And they're saying, in the world you have fun, but in God you have joy. And that's the problem. I, said, no, I don't think that's a problem at all. What is fun for you? Some people say it's, it's lighthearted and it's not godly. But other people say fun is the highest thrill. You know, that wasn't just good. That was fun. And they, you know, it's thrilling. So you, on both ends of the spectrum, it's, it's this or it's this. What does God's word say about God's joy? He says, it's the fullness of joy. So wherever you put fun on that spectrum, God's joy is greater and it, it, it contains it. It overwhelms it. It's the fullness of everything you can imagine is in God and it's joy and it's happy. So I want us to think about our, our God and his joy for us and, and begin to, to, to feel it more and more and more to run to God for the joy he has, for the pleasures that he wants to distribute. So as we get into this, as I started thinking about getting into um, uh, Psalm 16, I said, let's back up and just think through God's passion for joy a minute. I want you to see God plans joy, God prescribes joy, and God preserves joy for us. First of all, I want you to see God's plan for joy. Look at John 15, verses 10 and 11. John 15, 10 and 11. Here Jesus tells his disciples reason for the commands. God cares about our joy. John 15, verses 10 and 11 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you. Why? Here's the purpose. So that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Jesus says, I want you to abide in my love. I want you to be in my presence. And I've given you commands that I want you to obviously keep because I keep them. I want you to keep them. You don't disconnect from them. You don't throw them out. They're there for you. And as you do them, your joy will begin to emerge. And I don't want you just to have an emerging joy. I want you to have a fullness, a complete joy. Now, again, think about this. If your kid comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, why do I have to go to church? Why do I have to pray? Why do I have to sing? Why do I have to tithe? Why do I have to? Why do I have to? And what do you say? Because it's right. Where'd you get that? That's not in the text. Look back at John 15 11. For the joy set before you. Why should you keep the commands of God? Because I have designed the commands to bring you joy. Instead of acting, instead of doing life against the commands of God, I have designed life that if you do them through the commands, you will 
be filled with joy. And many times that's not what we're teaching. Do the commands because they're right, because it's obedient. And God says, no, I, I gave you the commands because I want you to be happy. Because I want to fill you with joy. And you will be filled with joy when you're going through the commands to the Father and to the Son. When you're doing things the way they do them, when the way they express it, it will bring you joy because that's the way God has designed life. He's planned for our joy, not just our obedience, not just our rightness. Second, I want you to see not only is he, he planned it, but he has specifically prescribed it to us. Look at Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. Love this passage, how it sets before you the contrast between the blessed man and the man who's not blessed from beginning to end, from heaven to hell. But let's just look at uh, maybe verse 1 and 2. How, verse 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law, in his law, he meditates day and night. Think about the prescription here. God has prescribed a way of life for us. And that way of life he's prescribed is obviously contrary to the way of life he's prescribed for the ungodly man. And so he tells us, don't do life the same way the ungodly man does it. Verse 1, don't walk the way he walks, don't stand, don't sit the way he does it. But... Verse 2, delight yourself in the law of the Lord. Meditate in it day and night. And he goes on and says, you're going to be like a tree firmly planted by water, yields its fruit in its season, doesn't wither, it always prospers. And you're going to have this blessed life. Says, That's the life I prescribed for you. Now as we look at that, don't miss the prescription. It's not just... I want you to do daily devotions in my word. It says, delight in the law. Don't miss the law of what? The law of the Lord. What the intent of this passage is not to entice you to mere obedience without heart. God abhors mere obedience. God abhors heartless worship. God abhors us coming to him and just giving him lip service. And so in the same way, God would abhor you just reading your Bible because you are devoted to it. Mere obedience. God says, delight. See the heart there? Delight yourself. Del not just, not just Obedience, but a heart, impassioned heart for God's word. But not just his word, but for the word of the Lord. The enticement here is not so much that you do daily readings in scripture, but that you do daily delight in your God, the God of the scriptures. That's his passion, that you, you come to him and experience joy in his presence he's planned for it he prescribes it 
And he even warns us to preserve it. Look at Colossians chapter 2 with me. Colossians 2, beginning at verse 20. Here we see the command to preserve what God has given. And we have to preserve it in light of the fact that we have Christians in the church who sometimes give more attention to the metaphysics of ethics than they do to the scriptures. Colossians 2 verse 27 through 23 says, If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. God says, why on earth would you let people come in and teach you you're having too much joy there. You shouldn't do that. Don't taste that. Don't touch that. It's too fun. Don't, don't touch that. Don't act like that. Don't do that. Why do you let people tell you to turn away from joy and to turn to self-abasement, harsh treatment of the body? You should do stuff that aren't so fun. You should do stuff that treats your body more harshly because God doesn't want you to just you know, let go. People think that somehow if you don't clap, you don't dance, you don't sing, you don't move in worship, that somehow you're more godly and you're more reverent. And God says, I warn you about folks like that. Don't listen to them. Because those people don't get it. Those people don't get that I'm not about just mere obedience. I'm about you delighting yourself in me. I'm about you coming into my presence and seeing the pleasures I have for you. I've designed all obedience for the whole purpose of filling you up with joy. It's man that wants to steal the wine of the Lord, not God. When you find people instructing you to not have pleasure in the presence of God and somehow tell you that's more godly and more reverent, I want to tell you that's more man-centered than God-centered. When you focus on God and His presence, you will be filled with pleasure forevermore. God has planned it, God has prescribed it, and God seeks to preserve it by warning us to not let people take it away. All right, let's jump in now to Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, and see that we have a God who tells us that He has given us pleasure. He's located it in us. He's extended it for a long time, and it's His pleasure. He's the Lord of it. First of all, see the location. I've already hinted at it. This location of pleasure, that it's both in our bodies and in our souls, uh, verse 9, Therefore my heart's glad, that's the inner being, my flesh also 
uh, dwells securely, so, which gives me peace and satisfaction and pleasure. Now, when you see that pleasure is in us, both body and soul, don't miss the word therefore. I'll take just a minute to explain it. He says, therefore, my heart's glad. Therefore, my body is glad. Well, what's the therefore? What, what got him to that place? He says, I am just unbelievably happy in God. Well, you have, that's why I read, started back reading it, verse 5. You have to read um, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, which brings him to verse 9, therefore. Uh, so what is it? Uh, verses uh, 5 and 6, he's talking about provisions. God has given me stuff. He's surrounded my life with wonderful provisions. And as you look at the provisions in your entire life, they're extravagant. And God has given them all to you. So you have that. Verse 7, he says, not only that, the Lord blesses me with counsel. God teaches us through the word, his precepts. Even at night, if you, as you go to sleep and you meditate upon scripture, you, you hear God speaking his precepts to you. So, so God's given me that. And then you, you look down in verse 8, and uh, it's just, he says, I've set the Lord continually before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And you get God saying, I'm with you. I'm always with you. I'm at your right hand. You're not just in mine, but I'm with yours. And you, you see this engagement to be the Lord's. Now, put all that together and think through it for a minute. Because of God's extravagance, he's provided us with our homes and our cars and our clothing and our food and our friends and our church and our environment and our world. Because of God's extravagance in providing for us, because of God's enlightenment, he's given us truth so that when we look at reality, we can tell what's what and what's not. He's enlightened us as to the truth of life and not only is he extravagantly give not only is he enlighten us through his teaching but he has also engaged himself with us walking beside us because of that i rejoice greatly my heart and my flesh cries out thank you lord what joy what unbelievable pleasure because of all god constantly does that's our god at work his provisions, his precepts, his person with us day in, day out. Now, where does he cram all of that pleasure? He says, I do it into your body and into your soul. He fills us with both. And, and it's so exciting to see God concerned both for our bodily existence as well as for our spiritual existence. There are lots of faiths that confuse the two, but we have a God who cares about the body as well as the soul, and he promised us to take care of both. Uh, our heart and our soul rejoice. Well, get into that maybe quicker. Um, let's, just, let's just jump down to verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul, so you got your soul there, to Sheol, nor will you let your allow your Holy One to undergo to go decay. I think that's the body as well. He says, you're going to take care of me. So I'm not only going to have pleasure, but the pleasure is going to go on and on and on, and the pleasure is going to go on and on and on, both body and soul, which is why we believe in the resurrection from the dead, which is why we believe in a glorified body, because God doesn't just give us a soul. 
He gives us a body. He gives he puts the happiness in both and he preserves both. Now, when you you see this phrase, this this he's not going to abandon our body or our soul, that was a text that Peter used in his first sermon. So I want you to look there and you 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 kind of get it expanded by Peter himself. Look at the Acts chapter two. Uh, and you see Peter preaching. He's not only preaching from Joel, but he's preaching from Psalm 16. So those are his texts. And I want to jump in on the Psalm 16 part of that message. Acts chapter 2. And he tells you how this pleasure goes on. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 24. It says, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. That's Psalm 16. David wrote it. Peter's picking up on it. Let me preach this to you a little bit. Verse 26, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. There's the expressed um, verse 10 that we just read in Psalm 16. You've made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Skip down verse 31. He looked ahead, and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Now let me just stop there. I, instead of preaching Peter's sermon, think back with me about Psalm 16. He says David was looking ahead, and he was looking to what Christ was going to do. He says until Christ comes, we die and we go to the grave. We go to Sheol. And we rest there. But when Christ comes, that's going to change everything. Because when Christ comes, he's going to do away with the bondage of death. And we're going to be resurrected. And Peter's preaching, he says, this, is the, this Jesus whom you see, you know this happened. Because he was dead, he was buried for three days, he's ro he rose again, you all see this. His body, his flesh was not abandoned to the grave. He's been resurrected. And so those of us in him will be resurrected with him. And so we won't have a body that's abandoned to decay either. Just like his body was not abandoned to decay. As a matter of fact, when he packs joy into our flesh and into our souls, we will take that joy into the midst of heaven bodily and rejoice physical pleasure spiritual pleasure forevermore what a, an exciting path to be on to to come to jesus and jesus gives you the power to be resurrected and to not lose pleasure to not abandon your flesh or your soul to take them both glorify them and fill you with endless days an eternity of pleasure that's our god's passion for us 
That's what David was preaching about. That's what Peter was preaching about, having this pleasure that goes on and on and on. You know, uh, we're in this world where, where nothing seems to last. You know, you can chew gum. It doesn't last, does it? You can eat food. It doesn't last. You can watch a movie. It doesn't last. Things just don't last. You can give a, a kid a toy, and no matter how much you wind it up and whatever it does, at some point they turn around and they say, well, is that all it does? And what's the answer to that? The answer is, that may be all you can do with it, but that's not all it does. The reason we tell you to be grateful to the giver is because every gift given to you connects you to the giver. So that toy, that device is, a, is, is something that connects you. And the most significant thing about the gift is that it should bring you back to rejoice in the giver. And so much of that is in Psalm 16, and so much of that's in Acts chapter 2. Our God is so engaged with us and committed to us in giving us things. If we just rejoice in the things and we don't see that those things were there to connect us to Him, we're going to miss the joy. We're going to miss what it really does. And what it really does is engage us to Christ forever, both body and soul. That's the exciting thing about God putting himself and his pleasure in us that he engages us to an eternal, endless love and pleasure. So we've seen his putting it. We've seen the length of it. Notice the, the Lord of our pleasure, verse 11. It says, you'll make me, you'll make me know the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy in your right hand. They're pleasures forevermore. When you think about you will make me know the path of life. Why is that important? It's important because people don't know the path of life. You will not get the path of life naturally. You won't go to school and figure out the path of life naturally. The path of life has to be revealed to you by the revelator who is the Lord himself. You will make me know the path of life. Why, why does someone have to make you know the path of life? Because you're on the path of death. Do you know anybody who's gotten off this planet without dying? What path are they on? They're on the path of death. Go back and look at it. Some of you look puzzled. Look at uh, Genesis chapter uh, 3. I'll show you the path of death. After Adam and Eve sinned, God put them on the path of of death, not the path of life. That's where we're all born. That's where we grow up. Genesis 3, verse 22, says, So the Lord fashioned into, excuse me, that's chapter 3, uh, I mean 2, chapter 3, verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So the tree of life, the path to life is, is a reality. But that 
tree of life is guarded. And there are angelic forces that have the ability, as you read in Scripture, with eyes all around to turn in every direction with flaming swords and to guard the tree of life so that no one can come to the tree of life. How do you get to the tree of life? People say, well, all roads lead to God. That's not true. No roads lead to God. No road you choose will get you to the tree of life because the tree of life is guarded. You can't get there. I can't get there. No roads that we choose lead us to God. It's an impossibility. Every road we've ever chosen, we die. It's a path to death. The only way to get known, to be known the path of life is it must be revealed to you. Jesus shows up and Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. You didn't have that. I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. I'm not coming to give you a miserable obedience, but I'm coming to fill you with joy. I'm coming that you might have abundant life, and even though you die, you will live. Because I'm the way and the life. I know you're on the path of death. I know you're going to die. But even though you die in me, you'll live. Because I'm life. I'm going to make you known, make known to you life. Why would you not run to Jesus? He's the only one who has eternal life. And he comes to make that known to us. He's the Lord of life, abundant life. He's the Lord of pleasure. He tells us in Psalm 16, not only will he make us known to us that path of life, but he's going to make known to us in that life his presence. And his presence will be the fullness of joy in his right hand. There will be pleasures forevermore. I've run out of time, but I just think about, the scripture talks about Around the throne of God, you'll see coming from the throne of God a river. So many times in life, it's like we're, we're playing in the tributaries of pleasure. We, we're getting some of the benefits of God, but we're not running to God. When you see this river flowing from the throne of God, I tell you, run into it. It won't drown you. It will overwhelm you with the glory and the power and the presence of God. I am most lost in wonder. I have had my most tear-streaming moments when I am running as hard and as fast as I can to get into the presence of God, and I'm engaged there in worship. It is presence. It's the fullness of joy. In his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. What life is ours in Christ. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your truth. What a joyful God you are. How we love you, how we adore you.
how much fun it is, how unbelievable pleasure to be with you, to hear from you. Lord, enable us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we love Jesus. We praise you for Jesus. Fill us with Jesus. For those, Lord, who are just getting a taste of Jesus, fill them up, Lord. Fill them up. Let them see they need to receive Jesus and have life forevermore. For we ask all these things, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. This is God's visible, physical way of reminding us of all Christ did for us. Let me just say this morning, if you're thrilled with Jesus, take it. If you're not thrilled with Jesus, don't take it, okay? It's, it's for those who are engaged with Jesus, who are thrilled that he's taken our sin and given us life. The bread, the wine is a symbol of life, a symbol of him cleansing us from our sins and filling us with himself. So let's take it and rejoice and worship. Those of you who let it pass by, just ask any of us, what does Jesus mean to us? We'd be glad to tell you. Thrills us. He fills us. I'm going to ask the elders and deacons to come forward. We will distribute this.